Well, we are in the book of Judges, kind of in chapter 10, we're kind of in chapter 11. I don't know if we'll get to chapter 12, but right in the middle of all of that is this judge named Jephthah. But before he was the judge, the judge's name was Jair, J-A-I-R, and he was a judge for 22 years, which is a long time compared to how uh, brief Jephthah's uh, deliverance was. I think he lives only six more years after this uh, account here in the Bible. So his, his time uh, was shorter. But after Jair died, uh, the nation of Israel returned to Baal. And that's another way of saying they stopped going to church or they just, the world got the best of them. But it's worse than that because they stopped worshiping God and they started practicing this fertility ritual nonsense that their neighbors were doing. And it's a repeated cycle in, the, in this period of time. And so this is what the people have returned to. And so the Bible tells us that God sold them to the Philistines and the Ammonites. And they are described as shattering and crushing them for 18 years. So it took 18 years before they cried out to God but they still had their idols. He didn't get rid of them. And so God didn't deliver them. It wasn't until they got rid of their idols and began worshiping him that he called Jephthah to be their deliverer. This thing is going like two things ahead each time, so I'm gonna try to get this right here. But this is Gilead, and Gilead is east of the Jordan River. So you see the Dead Sea, the Sea of Galilee, and the Jordan River running between the two. So east to the right of the Jordan River is this land of Gilead. Now when the 12 tribes of Israel entered the promised land and the land was divided among them, half of the tribe of Manasseh and Gad, the tribe of Gad, the tribe of Reuben, all received territories on the east side of the river. The land of Gideon is primarily what the tribe of Gad received. Uh, in Joshua chapter 13, there's a, a verse there that tells us that, uh, that Gad received all of the towns of Gilead. And then in chapter 5 of Judges, in Deborah's song, she uses Gad and Gilead interchangeably. And so we're talking primarily about this land that's right over there uh, where the Gilead and Gad is. And you'll remember that these Ammonites would come in and they would pretty much wreak havoc on those three tribes on the east side, but they were also crossing over into Judah and Benjamin and Ephraim and causing trouble there too. And this had been going on for 18 years. Jephthah, as we talked about last Sunday, is a very unlikely deliverer. Although he was a valiant warrior, he was the son of a prostitute, he was disowned by his family, and he had no inheritance. He had no claim to the land. Nothing. He had nothing. And he was driven from his home. Well, in verse 4 of chapter 11, it says that after they'd driven him away, some time passes. Later on, some time later, some time has passed, and the Ammonites have entered the land of Gideon. And they've camped there, and they're getting ready for war. So they're getting ready to cause trouble all over again. 
And so the elders of Gilead, Gilead went to Jephthah. And we all remember that Jephthah was kind of a, being nomadic, and all of these other men that were very similar to him were traveling with him, and so uh, would have been a dangerous bunch. And uh, they would have been a dangerous bunch. And so the elders of Gilead went to him and asked him for help. In verse 6 it says, Come, be our commander, and let's fight against the Ammonites. Come on, Jephthah, let's go get him. You can be the commander of our army. But Jephthah reminded them of his rejection. He reminded them of what had happened and how he'd been treated. And so they said, okay, well, we need to sweeten the pot. And they said, okay, well, not only can be the commander of the army, he'll be our leader too. See, the, the initial proposal was they still had control, but finally they're relinquishing it to him. They said, since that's true, we now turn to you. Come with us, fight the Ammonites, and you will become leader of all the inhabitants of Gilead. Well, when the, when, the, when the nation of Israel appealed to God and cried out for help, he didn't respond because he didn't trust them. They still had their idols. All they were trying to do was use him to get them out of their jams and go back to doing whatever they were doing. And when they came to Jephthah, he didn't trust them either. Jephthah knew he was just being used too. You see, they lacked integrity. We talked about what integrity is. It's when you have steadfast moral principles. It's when you keep your word. You're dependable. And how that's supposed to characterize a Christian. Now, none of us are that all the time. Just ask my family. But it should characterize us most of the time. We should be dependable people and keep our word and have moral principles that don't sway with the ethics of the day. The news doesn't tell us how to think. The entertainers don't. Politicians don't. This is the kind of people we're supposed to be. And so, no wonder that Jephthah questioned this oath that they were making to him. And in the sentence he says, uh, you know, if the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your leader. And then in verse 10 it tells us that they swore these things to him before God. And so they brought God into the agreement. God would be the one who would hold either one accountable if either one of them failed to, obligate, to fulfill their obligations. It's something very similar to a marriage vow. And God asks you and I the same question. He says, you know, if I deliver you from your sin, will I be your leader? Wednesday evening, we recognize the difference between being at peace with God and having the peace of God. Peace with God is when the hostilities between the two of you have been reconciled. The differences have been removed. And this, of course, happens at salvation. It's when we are justified. And so the imputed righteous, righteousness of Christ is given to us. And so we are no longer in that hostile relationship with God because of our sin. So that's something that's true of every believer. 
But what isn't true of every believer is having the peace of God. And that's that peace that surpasses all understanding. It's that peace that takes us through the storms. Gene used the word of sanctification. It's that ongoing process where we yield our lives into His hands. So this brings us up to this place where He has agreed to be their leader and to lead the army against these Ammonites. Our text will pick up in verse 12 of chapter 11. Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites, and he said, What do you have against me that you have come to fight against me in my land? So he's trying diplomacy. The king of the Ammonites said to Jephthah's messengers, When Israel came from Egypt, they seized my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now restore it peaceably. Well, Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and to tell him that this is what Jephthah says. Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of Ammon. But when they came from Egypt, Israel traveled through the wilderness to the Red Sea and they came to Kadesh. Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, please let us travel through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. They also sent messengers to the king of Moab, but he refused. So Israel stayed in Kadesh. Then they traveled through the wilderness and around the lands of Edom and Moab. They came to the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon, but they did not enter into the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, Amorites, king of Heshbon. Israel said to him, Please let us travel through your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel. Instead, he gathered all of his people, he camped at Jahaz, and he fought with Israel. Then the Lord God of Israel handed over Sihon and all of the people to Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of the entire land of the Amorites who lived in that country. They took possession of all the territory of the Amorites, from the Arnon to the Jabbok, and from the wilderness to the Jordan. The Lord God of Israel has now driven out the Amorites before his people Israel, but will you, but will you drive us out? Isn't it true that you may possess whatever your God, Chemosh, drives out for you, and we may possess everything the Lord our God drives out before us? Now are you any better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend with Israel or fight against them? While Israel lived 300 years in Heshbon and its villages and Er and its villages and all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, why didn't you take them back at that time? I have not sinned against you, but you have wronged me by fighting against me. Let the Lord who is the judge decide today between the Israelites and the Ammonites. But the king of the Ammonites would not listen to Jephthah's message that he sent him. So this disputed land on the map lies between the Arnon and Jabbok rivers. They sound like Star Wars characters. You can see that the the Arnon River there runs east and dumps into about the midway point of the Dead Sea. And that is the boundary for Moab. So Moab is from the Arnon River south. And then the Jabbok River, it runs, uh, it runs east as well, but it runs into the Jordan. And 
about, it hits it about there, about midway between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. And so it's the Jordan River going east and in, land in between these two rivers. That is the disputed territory that the Amorites were in control of. And uh, by the way, Heshbon is the capital for this king, this Sihon. And so if you're at the very tip of the northern tip of the Dead Sea and you go over to the east about 15 miles, that's where uh, Heshbon is. It's mentioned here in our text. So the king of the Amorites, Ammonites, was a, this is really bad, isn't it? There's Ammon and Amor. So, but uh, the Ammonites, the king, he accuses Israel of taking their land, but that just wasn't true. And so Jephthah explains to him history, not revisionist history, but what really happened. He says, Israel never at any point took anything away from Moab and Ammon. They never did that. When they had crossed the Red Sea and they came to Kadesh, they moved through the wilderness so they came to your territory. And they asked for permission to travel through safely to the Promised Land, but you refused it. The king of Edom, the king of the Ammonites refused, and the king of Moab refused. So instead of us confronting you, we went around you. We went all the way around until we came to this territory we're talking about. And we came to this king, and we asked safe travel from him. But he did not trust Israel. He gathered his army, and he attacked. But he lost. So the land never belonged to you. It belonged to the Amorites, and God gave the land to us. And by the way, we've been here for 300 years. You've never contested this in the past. The king of Moab hasn't contested it. Now all of a sudden you are. The only one here who's doing something wrong is you. For 18 years you have been raiding our three tribes, crossing the Jordan and raiding into three other tribes' territory. You're the one who has been doing something wrong. Well, that wasn't something that he probably wanted to hear. And so there was definitely going to be war. So let's see what happens, beginning of verse 29. The Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah, who traveled through Gilead and Manasseh, and then through Mizpah of Gilead. He crossed over to the Ammonites from Mizpah of Gilead. Jephthah made this vow to the Lord. If you will hand over the Ammonites to me, whatever comes out of the doors of my house to greet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites will belong to the Lord, and I will offer it as a burnt offering. Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord handed them over to him. He defeated 20 of their cities with a great slaughter. So the Ammonites were subdued before the Israelites. Verse 34. When Jephthah went to his home in Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with tambourines and dancing. She was his only child. He has no other son or daughter besides her. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes, and he said, No. Not my daughter. You have devastated me. You have brought great misery on me. I have given my word to the Lord and I cannot take it back. Then she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said. For the Lord brought vengeance on your enemies, the Ammonites. She also said to her father, Let me do this one thing. Let me wander two months through the mountains with my friends and mourn my virginity. Well, go, he said, and he sent her away for two months. 
So she left with her friends and she mourned her virginity as she wandered through the mountains. And at the end of the two months, she returned to her father and he kept the vow he had made about her. And she had never been intimate with a man. Now it became a custom in Israel that four days each year, for four days each year, the young women of Israel would commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. As we back up here, we see that the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah in gathering his army, just as he did with Othniel and Gilead, or Gideon, and tells us that the Lord handed Ammon over to him, and that it was a, a great slaughter. That's about the extent of the details we have of this battle. But in between, there is this vow that Jephthah makes. If you will hand over the Ammonites to me, whatever comes out of the doors of my house to greet me when I return in peace will belong to the Lord. And I will offer it as a burnt offering. It was his daughter who came out to meet him. She was his only daughter. And he said, I'm giving my word to the Lord and I can't take it back. Burn offering, by the way, is when you sacrifice an animal and the entire animal is consumed with fire. My Father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said. Just allow me to mourn my virginity. And when she returned, he kept the vow. She had never been intimate with a man. It became a custom to commemorate her every year. Face value, looks like Jephthah sacrificed his daughter to God on an altar. I will tell you that there are reasons to believe that he did and reasons to believe that he didn't. If he did not, then what he did is he dedicated her to the sanctuary. She would have served at the tabernacle for the remainder of her life. The idea would be that in verse 31, that word and, that conjunction, means that whatever comes out of my door, whatever possessions I have, will belong to the Lord. If it's an animal, or if it's an animal, I will offer it as a burnt offering. That's the idea. So it's two different ways you can look at it. She's either committed, dedicated to God, to serve in the tabernacle, or she was sacrificed. How we understand this vow, what we decide happened, uh, what conclusions we draw, become an exercise in biblical interpretation. Some things in the Bible are very clear. Um, substitutionary atonement, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, our faith in Him, we can have eternal life, have our sins forgiven. That's very clear in Scripture. Some things God hasn't explained at all. Um, Job wanted to vindicate himself, and he kept demanding to have the opportunity to plead his case before God because he was convinced that when he, he pleaded his case before God, God would be the one who was wrong. So what God did is He said, Job, do you realize what you're doing? You're telling me I'm wrong and you're right. But God never answered Job's question. He never explained himself. 
He basically just said, Job, that is above your pay grade. Sometimes the Bible makes something very clear, and sometimes we don't get the answer at all. But most of the time, we have quite a bit of information that we have to wrestle with. This is why we're supposed to study to show ourselves approved. A one who rightly handles the truth. So it becomes our responsibility to wrestle with these things. This is why denominations disagree over things like baptism or music in church or whether you can or can't lose your salvation. This is why there's differences of opinion about creation versus evolution or the chronology or the chain of events that's going to occur at end times. It's because there's material there that has to be handled properly. If there's four places in the Bible that talks about something, that's four different contexts. You have to take each passage in its context and then begin to pull and draw some conclusions from those four. When you start talking about Bible prophecy, it's from the beginning to the end. It is a massive amount of information. It takes a lot of rightly wrestling with that before you can make some really safe conclusions. Here's an example. Um, for the longest, everybody just assumed that God created the world in six literal days. Six to 24-hour days. And I still believe that. I'm confident that that's what happened. But I've wrestled with that. But for the longest, that was just what Christianity accepted as truth. And then evolution came along, and, and Christ, the church was not ready for that. They had no defense against that. And so there was this period of time where they tried to merge the two. Uh, theistic evolution and uh, the, the gap theory between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 and uh, the, the, the earth was formless and void and the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the earth and this formless void, this is, this is evolution. So all of it was designed to just plug a bunch of time into the creation. But if you are going to allow yourself to be trapped by the Bible, and a better way of saying that is if you are going to allow yourself to be submitted to the authority of Scripture, then you have to accept some of the things it says. The Bible tells us that God created the earth, the heavens and the earth in six days. The Bible tells us that death did not enter the creation until Adam and Eve sinned. Now we know there were dinosaurs. So they couldn't have died before that. You see, evolution teaches this long process of death. Death, death, death. Transition through death. The Bible says it began on one single moment in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. That's when death entered creation. And so, if you're going to allow the Bible to be your authority, then you begin to handle this information that's in Scripture, and you conform to it. You don't try to make it conform to what you want it to say. And so our passage this morning, there's not as, there's not as much at stake. It's a, it is a woman's life. But it's an exercise in how to use the Bible properly, how to interpret a passage properly.
If the glass is half empty, then Jephthah sacrificed his daughter. Which screen's up there? It should have been that one up there. If, if Jephthah sacrificed his daughter, then the glass is very much half empty. If the glass is half full, then she didn't die at all. She went to serve in the tabernacle. But first, let me say this, that there is only one true interpretation. There's only one. And the true interpretation does not depend upon our negative or positive outlooks on things. Whether we want to be optimistic or pessimistic. It doesn't matter. There's one true interpretation. We may not get it right, but there's one true interpretation. And the reason I'm using the half empty, the half full analogy is just because one is better than the other. I think we'd all agree that we would rather Jephthah didn't kill his daughter and she went and served in the temple. So that's a half full, half empty thing. But the truth is, there's just one truth. I don't know if this is making you uncomfortable because all of a sudden there's some responsibility falling on your shoulders about how you make your decision. We all do. And the second thing I would say before we look at the pros and cons here, because that's what we're basically going to do, is that no matter how you slice it, Jephthah never should have made this vow. It was a rash vow. We know that for a fact because he was regretting it. If I make some kind of agreement with God, then I'm okay with that. But if I make a rash one, I'm going to regret it, aren't I? He didn't need to make this vow any more than Gideon needed to lay out a fleece before God twice. Because God had already said He was going to deliver them. God was already going to deliver Israel from the Ammonites. The vow was unnecessary. The only reason it happened is because Jephthah was scared and he lacked faith. That's why he did this. He shouldn't have done it. And it cost him dearly. Half empty. This glass is half empty. Here's the reasons for that. What happened with Jephthah and his daughter is distinct from what God was going to do with the nation of Israel. God was going to deliver them from the Ammonites. That's one issue that is not necessarily connected to what's going on with Jephthah and his home. God had already decided he was going to deliver them. And the truth is, is that when we want to take the servitude route where she went to serve in the temple, that's an easier pill for us to swallow. And it smells like what we're trying to do is manipulate the text so that we can uh, overcome this ethical dilemma that we are perceiving it as. In other words, we're twisting it to, our, to what we want it to be. That would be an argument. Because this rash vow... Has, should be understood in the light of the canonization of Israel. This downward spiral in the book of Judges where things just continue to deteriorate. And as we looked at these different cycles with the Judges, um, the way they are organized in this book, you can see that there is a, a, the cycle is collapsing. And so there's this downward spiral. 
And so it fits. In Judges chapter 10, verse 6, it tells us that they were worshiping the idols of Aram and Sidon, Ammon, Moab, and the Philistines. And while we do not know to what extent, we do know that human sacrifice was a part of that. So he was basically just following the practice. Instead of seeing God as a, a, someone who wants to have a relationship with him, you know, their gods, these fertility gods, were perceived as people that you had to appease. There was bartering and manipulation. So instead of God being relational, he was transactional. In other words, if I do this, you will do that. This is why he anguished over his daughter. There was no backing out. And it's just a, a terrible testimony to the decaying spiritual condition of Israel. That's the glass half empty. The glass is half full. We have one example of Samuel who was dedicated to the temple. His entire life was spent there. And there are examples of women serving in the sanctuary. Exodus 38, verse 8. 1 Samuel 2, verses, chapter 2, verses 22. Psalm 68, 25. Although in those cases there's no mention of virginity as being an exception requirement. So maybe that was part of the deal. Maybe you were, it was a pledge of celibacy to the sanctuary. We just don't know that. The scriptures don't tell us that. If we're going to be honest, in the pagan rituals, it was a big deal. But Jephthah was making a covenant with God. He wasn't making a covenant with a pagan fertility deity. He was making a covenant with God. God who abhors human sacrifice. God who has prohibited human sacrifice in the law. So you make a covenant with that God, with a human sacrifice, it doesn't make any sense. And in addition, God has been very specific about what he, what, how and when an animal will be sacrificed in a burnt offering. For example, the burnt offering has to be a male. We're talking about a female. So the vow was really just pledging a possession to the Lord. If it was his daughter, it was to servitude. If it was an animal, a clean animal, then it was going to be sacrificed as a burnt offering. This is why she didn't mourn her death. She mourned her virginity. And this is why every year the women commemorated her. It's hard to imagine that every year the women would commemorate Jephthah's daughter who was sacrificed to God as a, as a human sacrifice. It doesn't make a lot of sense. There's been only one human sacrifice that God has permitted, and that was of His Son. So where are you standing on it now? What have you decided? I have to tell you that you can't find two Bible scholars that will agree. They all disagree. Some want the knife out, some want to put the knife away. We don't know, do we? God hasn't explained it to us. He hasn't made it clear. But there's one more thing that tips the scale for me, and maybe it will for you. 
And uh, let's turn to Hebrews. Just keep your finger there in, in the Judges. And let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. This chapter begins with uh, a definition of faith. And then it spends the rest of the chapter talking about all of these different people in the Bible who are going to be in heaven. And they're going to be in heaven because they were people of faith. And that God used them in extraordinary ways. This hall of faith is not to draw attention to them, it's to draw attention to what God did through them. But after he's went through everybody uh, in this chapter, he gets to verse 32 and he says, well, what more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, prophets. These fellows are linked right alongside them. Who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength after being weak, became mighty in battle, and put foreign, foreign armies to flight. And it goes on. Jephthah is in the hall of faith. You see, unlike the elders of Gilead, who lacked integrity, Jephthah was a man who kept his word. He was a man of faith. And even though it was going to cost him his daughter, Jephthah was looking into eternity. He was thinking about long term, not just his lineage ending with his daughter being in the temple as a chast, you know, as a, in a chast lifestyle there. He was thinking about what really matters. You know, when you're in high school, you want to be popular. In junior high, you want to be popular. And then all of a sudden, you graduate from high school, and it's, it's just over. That entire system of everything that was so important is just gone. It's just wiped away in an instant. <laughs> just devastating. And people who have put all their eggs in that basket, they don't know what to do with themselves. It's because what seems important now won't be important later. And so Jephthah was aiming high. He was looking into the future. And that's why we see him in the hall of faith. And while I may be wrong, for Jephthah to be included among the men and women of faith in the Bible, that tips the scale for me from half full to full and running over. And if uh, the water's muddy for you, I'm sorry because I spent, I, I didn't even want to give this message this week. It's too hard. It was just too difficult. The study was too hard. It's too much. So I have to, in, my, in, my, in good conscience, I have to give you both sides and you have to decide. For me, it doesn't make any sense that he would sacrifice his daughter to God unless he was out of his mind. And he's in the hall of faith. So I don't believe he did. I think she was dedicated to the temple. And the, the verse, the, the vow, is, you know, when, you, when you're making a vow to God, I'm not making a vow to him that if 
the first thing that comes out of my door is my daughter, I'm going to sacrifice her to you. Because I know that, that is, that's disgusting to you. That's an abomination. So what it means is, is when she comes out, she belongs to you, whether I like it or not. All of my servants, my in-laws, whoever's there, if it's an animal, it's a clean one, it's a burnt offering. Again, he didn't need to make that, but he did. Well, in the closing seven verses, we're going to find out how the story ends with Jephthah. It's just the first seven verses of chapter 12. After this battle, after this devastating vow, the men of Ephraim were called together and they crossed the Jordan to Zaphon. And they said to Jephthah, Why have you crossed over to fight against the Ammonites, but didn't call us to go with you? We will burn your house down with you in it. <laughs> so let's just get the picture. The land of Gilead is across the river. Ephraim is on the other side. So the army from Ephraim has crossed the Jordan and they're confronting Jephthah in the land of, Gilead, in the land of Gad, in the land of Gilead. Then Jephthah said to them, My people and I had a serious conflict with the Ammonites, so I called for you, but you didn't deliver me from their power. And when I saw that you weren't going to deliver me, I took my life into my own hands, and I crossed over to the Ammonites, and the Lord handed them over to me. Why then have you come today to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all of the men of Gilead, and they fought and defeated Ephraim, because Ephraim had said, You Gileadites are Ephraimite fugitives in the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh. That means that after he had pleaded with them, he had explained to them, he, I did call you guys, you guys decided not to come, but God delivered them over. What do you want me to say? This is a good thing. But how they responded to that was bad. This was a land grab on their part. We remember that it was the Spirit of the Lord who gathered uh, Gideon's army. It was the, and that was in chapter 8. And after that battle, it was the Ephraimites who approached him. They were jealous because they couldn't share in the glory. You remember that? The Spirit of the Lord used Gideon to round an army up out of certain tribes. Well, Ephraim was not asked. But the point was, is your argument is with God, it's not with me. This is what the Spirit of the Lord, this is the army the Spirit of the Lord pulled together. Well, Ephraim was furious in chapter 8. And now here they are. They've crossed the Jordan River and they're wanting to kill Jephthah. Supposedly for not including them. But they did ask for help, so the accusation is false. It's just a mask to conceal what they're really wanting to do. They want his land. They're wanting the land, the same land the Ammonites wanted. And so when he pleads his case, he presents it to them. This is the opportunity for humility and honesty and an apology. But these people had no pride for greater Israel. 
And this insult of theirs is what sparked the war. The insult is what showed that they weren't going to, they weren't going back across the river empty-handed. And to understand this insult is kind of difficult, but it basically is saying that this land belongs to Ephraim and Manasseh, and that you guys have moved in here, you're kind of mixed, a mixed bunch of mixed breed, you're squatters, you have no right to this territory. In other words, you're leaving one way or another. And so this was why there was a war. Well, Ephraim fell. And in verse, in verse 4, Jephthah gathered all of the men of Gilead. They fought and defeated Ephraim because Ephraim has said, you Gileadites are Ephraimite fugitives in the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh. So the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan, leading to Ephraim. Whenever a fugitive from Ephraim said, let me cross over, the Gileadites asked him, are you an Ephraimite? And he would say, no. So they said, okay, well, please say Shibboleth. And if he said Sibboleth, because he could not pronounce it correctly, they seized him and killed him at the fords of the Jordan. And at that time, 42,000 from Ephraim died. And then we see here Jephthah judged Israel six years, and when he died, he was buried in one of the cities of Gilead. So the picture here is, after this battle, people were scrambling, trying to get back across that Jordan. But Jephthah's army got to the river, was blocking their exits. And so they came walking up, you know, it's in the movies where you, you know, you, you put on the outfit of the enemy and you're trying to get across the border. And, and it was it was Bible Password. It's probably the worst, most dangerous game of Bible Password ever played, where you had to say this word right. It would be like if I was expected to say something uh, in Spanish that where you have to roll your tongue. I'd be dead meat. I could not do it. Maybe you're the same way. You know how different people in the New England and in the South speak differently. So this is what was happening. Well, that's Jephthah. Teaches us to not make rash vows. Now, God is not a, a God that needs us to make deals with Him. It's that you yes be yes and you no be no. When He's telling you He can do something, He's going to do something for you. You just have to have faith. That was one of the neater things we learned on Wednesday night too. Is that. that just have faith the size of a mustard seed can move a mountain. What that means is that it's not the size of your faith, it's the object your faith is in. And so this was a tragic mistake he made by making this vow. We also see this tribe of Ephraim being jealous, wanting attention and pride, and thinking that they had some kind of, that they were more important. Uh, in Bible history later, we're going to see this continue to play out with this tribe. We don't want to be like them. Let's pray.